Hello everyone and welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live event on unwanted horses brought to you free by Pfizer Animal Health. Visit them online at www.strongedc2x.com. I'm Christy West, digital editor and producer for the Horse.com and joining us today to answer your questions about this topic are Dr. Midge Leach, clinician in radiology at the University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center. She's a former chair of the American Association of Equine Practitioners Welfare Committee, chair of the AAEP's Tennessee Walking Horse Task Force, and current member of the AAEP's Welfare Committee and Task Force on Medication in the Non-Racing Performance Horse. We also have Dr. Tom Lenz, immediate past chairman of the Unwanted Horse Coalition, senior director of Equine Veterinary Services at Pfizer Animal Health, and a past president of the AAP, former chair of the AAEP's Equine Welfare Committee, and recipient of the AVMA's 2010 Animal Welfare Award. Thank you all for joining us today. And before we start, I'd like to address an online rumor that this session was planned to discuss the results of the government report on equine slaughter that was released today. We will not be talking about that report as this session was not planned to coincide with that. Our plan instead for tonight is to discuss quote unquote unwanted horses in the United States and ways we can address the problem. Um, as always, we've received far more questions for this event than we could possibly answer in the time that we have tonight. We got about 400 questions, but we have picked out several to cover the major topics that you're all interested in. Once we're through with those, if we have time left, we'll move on to the live questions. If you'd like to ask a question, you might want to hang around for just a bit to see if we already have a similar one. And if not, please type your question into the chat box at the bottom of the control panel on your screen. <clears throat> please note that if you sent your question in already, you do not need to send it again. Now, to start the session off, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to throw out a poll for our audience as kind of a quiz question. I'm just curious to see your thoughts. Has the downturn in the economy resulted in an increase in the number of unwanted horses? If you'd like to take a minute and vote on that. And we're actually going to start. Uh, Dr. Lenz is going to give us just a couple of thoughts, a little bit of an outline of, on the unwanted horse situation in the U.S. So, Dr. Lenz, take it away. Great. Uh, so you're going to tr throw the slides up on the screen as I go along, right? Yes, sir. We'll give people just a moment to vote. Okay. They're not coming up on mine. Right. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and start. Yeah, uh, go ahead. The unwanted horse issue is not a new issue here in the United States. We've always had horses that, for whatever reason, were uh, discarded, unwanted, taken to a sale barn and and sold for a number of reasons. And so it's not a new issue that the horse industry dealt with. But what brought it to the forefront was in 2000, there was a bovine spongiform encephalitis outbreak in Europe. And the following year, a foot and mouth disease epidemic in Great Britain. And the result was that Europeans who have always eaten horse meat increased their consumption of horse meat. Now, we don't eat horse meat here in the United States, and they don't in, in Britain either, but they do in Europe. And that drew the attention of the American media. And they wondered if we ate horses here in the United States. And what they found when they investigated it at that time, this is 2001, was that we don't, but we were selling horses into the meat processing uh, uh, plants. And so when that uh, became known, it caused quite a stir in the horse industry. And I think uh, most horses owners were not aware of it. and. Uh, some congressmen introduced legislation to ban the processing of horses for human consumption. But I think the important thing that happened was that it fostered the realization in the horse industry that we have a subset of horses 
that for, for a number of reasons we discard every year. And uh, for want of a better name, the industry's called that the unwanted horse. They could, I guess, be called discarded horses or horses that are no longer needed. But unwanted is the uh, name that the industry uh, fell upon. So what are unwanted horses? Their horses are no longer wanted by their current owner because they're old, injured, sick, unmanageable, or fail to meet their owner's expectations. And fail to meet their owner's expectations, you'll see as we move along here, is the number one reason that horses become unwanted. So generally, these are horses that are old, horses that have a, a lameness that's incurable and they're in chronic pain, horses that have behavioral problems, they're dangerous, you can't uh, train them, you can't break them to ride. It also includes unadoptable feral horses or mustangs, and we'll talk about them in a second. Horses that fail to meet their owner's expectations because they're not very pretty or they're not marketable, they can't sell them, they're the wrong color or they have no color or they cost too much to care for, and with the downturn in the economy, cost too much to care for has become uh, important. But if you go to a horse processing plant, and horses that are processed for meat epitomize the unwanted horse because they've reached the lowest point in economic value of any horse in the country. If you look out in a pen of these horses, you'll see horses that are old and horses horses that are lame and horses that are pretty skittish, but most of the horses look just like your horses, my horses. They look like normal, healthy horses of various ages and various breeds. So when this debate started back in uh, 2001, there were a lot of things that we didn't know. We didn't know what breeds were represented. Some breeds felt it wasn't their problem. Other breeds felt that uh, the other guy was the culprit and uh, they were doing great. We didn't know if most of them were gildings or mares or stallions. What age group? Were they young horses or old horses? Were they purebred or grade? What did they do for a living before they became unwanted? What, was the, what were they worth? originally and what were they worth when they were sold? Do they become neglected, abused, or processed for meat? And who's responsible? And so a lot of that we've learned since then. The Unwanted Horse Coalition ran a survey in 2010 that answered a lot of these questions. The United States Department of Agriculture has provided information that's provided insight into the unwanted horse issue. So next slide. So it's hard to get a grasp on how many unwanted horses there are. We, we know that a horse that ends up at a processing plant is certainly unwanted because these are horses that are only worth a couple of hundred dollars. And so in 2009, about 42,000 horses were exported to Canada to be processed for human consumption, and about 46,000 exported to Mexico as the plants here in this country were closed in 2007. 2010, roughly 138,000 horses were exported to both those countries for processing. Feral horses are around 26,000 BLM horses that are in BLM-funded sanctuaries. When the Bureau of Land Management removes horse, a horse from the range, if that horse is over the age of 10, or if 
that's been put up for adoption three times and not adopted. And it's placed in long-term sanctuaries, which are ranches in Kansas and Oklahoma and other parts of the country, where they pay a rancher to feed these horses for the rest of their lives. In the wild, uh, Mustangs live about 15 years. In the sanctuaries, they live between 25 and 30 years. And the government spends about $37 million each year uh, paying for these sanctuaries. Oop, you moved ahead of me. Sorry about that. There are about 11,000. There are about 11,000 feral horses in the Bureau of Land Management adoption pipeline. And these horses that are adopted, the stallions are castrated, and these horses are put up for adoption at various locations around the country. And there are around 38,000 feral horses still on the range. The wild horse herds double in population every four years and therefore the government feels they have to remove certain horses. What we don't know and what we can't get a handle on is how many horses are in rescues because there's no national rescue organization, how many horses are neglected, abandoned or abused, turned out in the pasture and, and ignored, or left in a stall and not cared for. Based on some processing numbers that the USDA uh, collected between 2001 and 2005, we know that about 70% of the horses going to processing plants, which are certainly unwanted, are a, a quarter horse or a western type horse, meaning they're a stocky horse. About 11% are a thoroughbred type horse, which means they're tall and relatively slim, and then the others are various breeds. Well, we know that 60% of the registered horses in this country are quarter horses, and uh, 10 to 11 percent of the registered horses in this country are thoroughbreds, and so there's no one breed or one discipline that's more responsible than the other. It's, it's a horse industry issue, and it's spread across the entire uh, group of breeds and disciplines. About 54 percent are mares, 41 percent gillings, and about 4 percent stallions, and again, that represents the demographics of the horses here in this country. And so, again, there's not one specific group that's uh, at fault here. It's all of our problem. Contributing factors, the survey that was run by the Unwanted Horse Coalition in 2010, where around 27,000 people responded. Uh, downturn in the economy, of course, is a problem. And I'll show you a chart later on that shows that's happened before. Indiscriminate breeding, where people haven't got a clear, concise plan for what they're going to do with the full. I mean, we've all heard people say, I'm going to breed old Dobbin and see what she gets. And of course, uh, I think nowadays we need to be really aware of uh, if, we, if you, you don't get what you want, what are you going to do with the full? I think in the past we haven't worried about that. Closing the processing plant, some feel is part of a contributing factor, the high cost of euthanasia. On average, it costs around $400 to euthanize a horse to dispose of the carcass. Only about $75 of that is the actual euthanasia cost. Disposal of the carcass is the most expensive uh, part of uh, euthanizing and disposing of a horse. And that can range from anywhere from a few hundred dollars if your horse is buried on the property to a couple of thousand dollars if the horse is cremated. And there's a wide variation between. The inability to sell horses or the lack of buyers that we currently see is uh, certainly a contributing factor. And then I think a lack of owner responsibility is key. It's not only a key uh, contributing factor, but it's a key solution that we need to be responsible for our horses throughout their entire life, 
not just until we're tired of taking care of them or we don't need them anymore. This chart shows the breed registration trends back in the mid-80s. There was a pretty deep recession in the horse industry and there was a dramatic decrease in all of the breeds. And then over time that was resolved and, the, and most breeds peaked around 2004. And since then, it's been a steady decline. And talking to some of the folks from Quarter Horse Association, the Thoroughbred Association, the uh, Jockey Club, uh, Paint Horse, and so forth, there's about a 30 to 40 percent decline in the number of horses being bred and born uh, since 2004. So that's a significant decline in the horse industry. We've seen that type of decline before. So the horse that's most likely to be sold, the honored horse that's most likely to be sold, is a show or competition horse that failed to meet its owner's expectations because it uh, wasn't pretty enough or didn't win enough ribbons or it uh, wasn't very successful in the show ring. Primarily these are quarter horses, paints, and thoroughbreds, which happen to be the largest breeds. And these are usually relatively young horses that have been and tested and found uh, not to measure up, and about half of them are mares and gildings, which makes sense because there's about an even split in show horses between mare and gildings. The horse is most likely to be given up, donated, or relinquished as a resource that failed to meet their own expectations. These are primarily thoroughbreds and quarter horses. These are older horses that have certainly run for, for a number of years on the track. Most of them are gildings and some are mares, and again, most of the resources are buildings. And these horses primarily end up in rescue, retraining, retirement facilities. The horse most likely to be donated is a recreational riding horse, and many of these horses were show horses. We need to advance it one more. Many of these horses were show horses in their first career. They became unwanted by their current owner, and they were sold to someone that used them for a knock-around horse or a trail riding horse or a gymkhana horse or a horse for their grandkids. These are usually old horses that have a terminal illness such as colic or a fracture of some sort, primarily quarter horses and thoroughbreds and Arabians, and again, quarter horses and thoroughbreds make up most of the horses, and they're a lot older. They're, they're up over 10 years of age, up into their 20s, and again, they're they're half gildings and half mares, and again, that makes sense. So that's kind of a quick roundup of what are unwanted horses, why do we have them, what are the contributing factors, and we'll talk more about some solutions later, later in the hour. Absolutely, and thank you so much, Dr. Lenz, for giving that summary. Um, just quick results of our poll earlier, has the downturn in the economy uh, resulted in an increase in the number of unwanted horses? Um, pretty overwhelming percent of our audience, 96% of you say it has. Uh, Dr. Lenz, did you have any comments on that? Well, I think, I think it has. Uh, you know, horses are not uh, a requirement for most people. They're kind of a disposable income type animal that people, if they have disposable income, they'll buy a horse and use it for showing or for trail riding or for whatever. When uh, things tighten up, well, then they need they cut back to things that they have to have to live, and I think we certainly have seen that uh, in the horse industry. 
Certainly. All right, we're going to move on into our questions now. Our first question is from Harriet in Great Britain, who would like to know, is accepting responsibility for an unwanted horse fueling the wave of unwanted horses? Well, um, this is Midgley speaking, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to participate this evening. I would say that accepting responsibility for an unwanted horse is more likely to be part of the solution so long as the decision to take on that extra responsibility is well thought out. Uh, it ought to be a lifetime commitment for that horse which you're accepting and uh, therefore there will be not a, uh, not a small expense attached to it and uh, I think that if one is taking on an unwanted horse you have to think about your own human um, living circumstances and if they're unlikely to change, um, which uh, may permit you to, to make this sort of decision, but if you have an uncertain future yourself, then that horse will simply be turned, the first one of yours turned back into the unwanted horse pool because clearly um, that horse hasn't uh, spent as much time with your family hasn't provided you with as much pleasure. But I think if you can financially afford and have circumstances which will permit taking on this responsibility for the life of that unwanted horse, it is absolutely part of the solution. Great. Thank you for that. Our next question is from T, who has a couple of comments and a question. Uh, she says, perhaps in this economy, breeders need to be watched more closely as they always bring up the economy as a reason or excuse why they couldn't feed horses or care for them properly anymore. And often it turns out that these conditions have been going on for years or even decades. Um, it seems like that even, even when the money was supposed to be there, that the education maybe should have been improve before they get into the, got into breeding horses and what are your thoughts on it, assisting that situation? Is that for me? Dr. Lentz, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the economy isn't it, like I said earlier, is an integral part of the horse industry because most horse activities are based on disposable income and so when the economy gets bad, the horse industry suffers and uh, as we saw on that chart, they, it decreases in the breeding. Right now, there's about a 40% decrease in the major breeds in breeding since 2004. And so foaling numbers are down dramatically, uh, which is a result of the economy. Um, I don't think the, I don't necessarily think that the horse industry blames the economy. I think that they're aware of the economy. And of course, they would like to see uh, the horse industry healthy and happy and doing well all the time, not just uh, every uh, 5 or 10 or 15 years, it seems to cycle. So economy is certainly a big part of the horse industry and it's certainly a big, uh, a big part of making a decision whether or not you can afford a horse or whether or not you can own a horse or be in the, in the horse business. Absolutely. And our next question is from Jenny in Washington who would like to know if there is any breakdown by state of numbers of unwanted horses. No, that's a really difficult number to get. I mean, even nationally, we think there's around 170,000 to 200,000 horses that are probably unwanted. 
but it's very difficult to determine that. There are a couple of states, Colorado's made a run at trying to determine how many they have. Uh, Colorado knows that they've got about a 60% increase in the number of horses that they are reported as being abandoned or turned loose uh, as reported by the sheriff's departments. But it's very difficult state by state to, to determine that. I, I think it stands to reason the states that have the largest numbers of horses will probably have a greater problem, that, especially states where the economy is really bad, like uh, probably California, Arizona, and a few other states. But uh, the, the simple answer is no, we, do, we don't have exact figures. And as I said earlier, because there's not a national organization of horse rescues and retirement retraining facilities, we, it's very difficult to, to even find out how many there are. And then once you have a pretty good idea to determine how many horses they have, uh, and a little bit later, we'll talk a little bit about what we learned in a survey as far as uh, horses and rescues. All right, perfect. Uh, our next question from Janet in Illinois, who would like to know if the number of backyard breedings are going down, is going down. Do you have any way of knowing that? Well, again, I think that's really difficult. It's really difficult to know because we actually don't know how many backyard breedings there are. We know that that's a substantial part of the problem problem because frequently these horses are very low value to begin with. Uh, we know that 25% of the horses that go to processing plants are not registered horses or great horses. Uh, so there's a fair number of them out there. And also, I think even though horses uh, are frequently from registered parents, doesn't necessarily mean that people register them. Uh, but it's a hard number to get a hold of. We know, I mean, here where I live, I can point to to people around the country that are backyard breeders that have very poor quality horses where there's absolutely no market for them. Um, but uh, we really don't have a handle on how many they are, what percentage of the issue they are. All right. And our next question is from Jackie in California who would like to know if we're seeing any improvements in the numbers of unwanted horses yet. Improvements meaning a decrease in the number, I assume. I would assume. Right now, we're not. Yeah, we're not. Uh, and again, it's hard to determine exactly how many there are. Uh, we can determine exactly how many go to processing plants, and that number has been consistent at about uh, 100,000 a year. If you look back to the, to the 1980s, mid-1980s, when there was a recession in the horse industry, the number of horses being processed for meat increased and peaked at about 300,000 in 1990. So there's a trailing effect. And I think what we're seeing right now, when this, when this issue started and when the economy uh, went south, it really, it really damaged the lower horses, the, the mid to low value horses. Uh, some of those horses value decreased by 28, 30, 40 percent. But the better top-end horses from the wealthier owners were not uh, were not touched. Well, today, which is eight or nine years later, we we see that the, they are being uh, being uh, affected by the economy, and so there's always a a trail off. Uh, the number will actually continue to increase almost after the problems resolve for two or three years, and then it'll flatten out if if we follow what's happened in the past. All right, and our next question is from Nancy in New Hampshire, who would like to know what are the breed organization breed organizations doing to help with this issue. 
Well, they're doing quite a lot. Uh, I think uh, one of the good things that's come out of this bad problem is that the breed associations are taking ownership of it uh, and doing a lot of things. I was just at Washington, D.C. at the American Horse Council meeting, and we had a breed roundtable where we discussed uh, things that are going on. You know, the Jockey Club has the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation and Thoroughbred Charities of America, which have had some issues recently, but the Jockey Club's $600,000 to match any, any money that uh, horse owners donate to those charities, and that's a significant increase from what they've done in the past. Uh, the Quarter Horse Association, the Standard Bread Breeders have a full circle program where you can place on your horse's registration paper that that, that horse ever becomes unwanted or the current owner doesn't want it, that you'll take the horse back and, uh, and recycle it and use it for something else. There's a lot of activity going on with uh, low-cost castration clinics. There's some discussion of low-cost euthanasia clinics. There are uh, the Unwanted Horse Coalition, for example, has a number of brochures that you can go online and get or call them. They'll send them to you about what to do with a horse that you no longer want or no longer can afford. What are your options? Uh, they've got a listing of over 600 rescues that uh, will take horses in. And, uh, and the rescues, they, they don't vet the rescues according to uh, whether they're a good rescue or a bad rescue, but they do ask them do you follow the AP's guidelines for horses or rescues? Are you a 501c3? Uh, and so there's enough information on that site that you can look at a rescue and determine if you uh, want to take your horse there. There are also, most of the breed associations have a website that you can go on and uh, people that have horses that would like to give away uh, list those horses and you can, you can certainly take them for free. And, you know, a lot of these horses, especially older horses that have been show horses, are outstanding horses for people to raise their children on and to use to introduce their kids to, to riding horses because they're calm, they've seen everything, they know what to do, and they're great horses for something like that. So there are a number of things that are going on within the horse industry to solve the problem. And I think in the months and years to come, you'll, you'll see more things happen and it will continue after the, uh, the issue is resolved. Absolutely, and I want to reiterate the listings of uh, horses available for adoption. We have one of those on thehorse.com where people can list a free horse free to a good home of any breed, so please check it out if you're interested in looking into a horse in your area. Our next question is from Lyd in British Columbia who, says, who asks, uh, do you think we should have a license and registration program that would require breeders and owners to be licensed before owning or breeding horses? Well, uh, my personal point of view is that people should have to go through an educational process and licensing before they're allowed to raise children. But um, <laughs> as far as the horse world is concerned, I think we're all very uh, convinced that education is the thing that's going to be the key to resolving the unwanted horse situation. So requiring people to become educated and understand what the commitments and what the commitment to a, any animal, horse, dog, cat, uh, involved before they're allowed to take one under their wing, so to speak, uh, would be standing. Um, I'm not optimistic 
about the fact that that will happen, but I do think that um, it, it would be a wonderful thing to uh, accomplish so that the average person who thinks that it'd be wonderful for their kids to have a, a horse to grow up around or a foal to raise um, really understand what the entirety of that issue is that they're getting into. Uh, and um, I think any means of spreading education about uh, animal responsibility uh, it should be um, well, uh, well sought and, uh, and uh, well supported. Absolutely. And we have a question from our live audience. Um, what do you think is a reasonable approach for breeders to take responsibility for the horses that they're breeding for sale? Well, I think at least um, as it regards stallions, um, there is an approval process which in essence is uh, success at the job uh, that they do. Uh, racehorse, racehorses who are stallions who are slow uh, rarely if ever go to stud and if by some mistake one gets there, uh, they're not very successful. I my practice was primarily focused on performance horses and uh, since the warm blood has become such a dominant uh, uh, part of the show horse world, uh, the method for approval of stallions and mares that was always utilized in Europe, the core, is, has, was imported <coughs> with those performance horses to the United States and so approval for breeding um, both stallions and mares takes place, but uh, I, you know I think I think the reality of it is that unfortunately uh, a lot of mares who are unsuccessful at their job, but who are loved or who um, have conformational abnormalities that result in their uh, in performance limiting, are taken home bred because oh we love her and maybe she'll throw us a lovely foal, and um, so there's not nearly such a stringent approval process for mares. Uh, again, uh, the thing that I think many of us forget is that because you cross a top flight stallion to a top flight mare, there's no guarantee that you will um, get offspring that will be suitable for the job that uh, you anticipate and um, therefore it's frequently better in my opinion and I advise most of my clients to do that is you know go out and buy something that you can see is already on the ground has a leg in each corner and maybe even wait till it's grown and begun to do the job you will buy it to do and then at least you have some idea of what the quality of the offspring is as opposed to saying oh well you know I'm going to breed old Dobbin and uh, see what we get, and then when it hits the ground, you're not so pleased with um, with the product. It's definitely good to see what you're getting. <laughs> I agree with that 100. percent All right, we're going to change. No <laughs> <laughs> we're going to change gears a little bit. Uh, we're going to touch briefly on uh, equine slaughter. We had a number of questions about this. Um, Patricia from Vermont would like to know what is the current situation on slaughter regulation in the United States? Well, currently right now there are no processing plants open in the United States. They were 
all three closed. There were two in Texas and one in Illinois, and they were closed in 2007. And so there are none in this country. There's been legislation introduced in, uh, to the Senate by Senator Landau of, of uh, Louisiana uh, just in the last week that would amend the Horse Protection Act and make it illegal to uh, process a horse for human consumption. And I would expect that there will be something like that uh, introduced on the House side as well. There's also supposed to be legislation introduced in the House in the near future that has been introduced before, but every two years they have to reintroduce these. I think it will be HR 305, which will make it illegal to transport a horse in a double-decker trailer. Uh, there's a problem when you put horses in the trailers that are designed for cattle and there's usually not enough head space. And so there's legislation, uh, there's a law on the books today that you can't transport a horse to a processing plant in a double-decker trailer, but that doesn't mean you can't transport them around the country and then uh, unload them and put them in a, a flatbed. So this legislation would make it illegal to transport a horse anywhere in the United States and a double-decker trailer, and I think that's certainly a good idea. With the exception of folks in the rodeo industry have specially built trailers that are that are much taller, and uh, they're built especially for horses, and they have plenty of headroom. And I believe there will be an amendment introduced to uh, to allow that. Statewide, there are a number of states that are working on uh, building or encouraging the building of processing plants. Uh, right now, the only four states where it's absolutely illegal is uh, California, Texas, Illinois, and New York, I believe. Uh, but there are several states in the western part of the country, Wyoming, Montana, Nebraska, that are looking at uh, building processing plants. But in the latest uh, Ag Appropriations Bill, funding for federal inspectors has been leaded. And so even if there were a processing plant, uh, federal inspectors would not be allowed to inspect the horses. And there are always federal inspectors in these plants for cattle, pigs, horses, or whatever. And uh, that itself would preclude processing horses in this country uh, because the meat couldn't be transported across state or federal lines. And so uh, we've had legislation uh, introduced for the last 10 years. It's move somewhat uh, in the past, and uh, I'm not sure what it will do in the future. The latest GAO report that you talked about earlier in the show has been released, and uh, apparently there will be some discussion in that report, and I haven't seen it, and I haven't read it yet, uh, that will uh, be pertinent to this issue. All right. Thank you very much for that. Our next question is from Janet in New York, who would like to know if the slaughter process for horses is considered humane or inhumane. Well, you know, any time that an animal is euthanized is a difficult situation, whether it be a horse or a, a dog or a pig or a cow. But there are certainly federal regulations that determine how that's done here in the United States or even in the European Union or anywhere around the world. When this issue started, the American Association of Equine Practitioners was asked by several senators and congressmen if they thought uh, euthanasia at horse processing plants was humane. And so several 
veterinarians, including myself, were sent there to inspect the plants. And uh, it's important to realize that the American Veterinary Medical Association, which sets the standards for euthanasia of all animals in the United States, convenes an expert panel on euthanasia every 10 years. In fact, there's one going on right now. Uh, and that panel is made up of practitioners, anesthesiologists, behaviorists, ethicists, uh, a number of different types of veterinarians and professionals that determine uh, what's humane and what's not humane. And of course, what is humane is something that ends their life immediately uh, with minimal pain. And so the three euthanasia options that are approved by the American Veterinary Medical Association are an overdose of barbiturate, which is how most of the horses that we euthanize and practice are euthanized, gunshot, and uh, captive bolt, which simulates a gunshot without the actual bullet. Gunshot and captive bolt are used in uh, processing plants for, for horses as well as cattle and other animals. So in the opinion of the American Association of Equine Practitioners and the opinion of the American Veterinary Medical Association, euthanasia of horses at a processing plant is humane. There are veterinary uh, United States Department of Agriculture veterinarians attendance to make sure that that happens. Uh, and so uh, from a medical perspective, they're, they're humane. All right. Thank you for that discussion. And Randy in Canada would like to know how can we speak with, what are your suggestions for speaking with concerned citizens, by which I'm assuming he means non-horse owners, in their own language regarding horse welfare issues? Well, I um, was fortunate enough to be invited to uh, serve as one of the speakers um, by the uh, Unwanted Horse Coalition uh, so that there are people available regionally around the country to speak to the topic and I would say that uniformly um, if one speaks about this issue of the unwanted horse in a factual nature that halfway by uh, at the, the, a maximum halfway through the talk people are beginning to wrap their minds around what the reality of this issue is and that one, there are definitely unwanted horses, in spite of what some uh, websites will suggest. Uh, Tom's defined what makes up an unwanted horse, and that dealing with this uh, certainly uh, consistently large population of unwanted horses is a knotty problem. And uh, I think that um, whether the audience is horse owners or non-horse owners, presenting information about what the situation is and what the possible solutions are and what difficulties are with each of those solutions is uh, the appropriate way to address the issue and in fact is really a very effective way. It, um, it may not be uh, as stirring as some of the emotional uh, misguided or misinterpreted or misrepresented facts are concerned, but I do think that it is effective and um, I think that those of us in the horse industry who are 
concerned about the unwanted horse should take it as a personal responsibility to speak in a rational, calm way uh, with facts to back up what they have to say uh, anytime they have the opportunity to address this issue uh, because it's clearly not going to go away uh, in the foreseeable future and um, uh, unless we get people educated about it, um, the continued irresponsible breeding of horses uh, will persist and uh, will not be uh, a rational approach to dealing with those horses who are who already make up this population. Sure. All right, we're going to move into discussion of euthanasia, which we touched on a little bit. Uh, our question in this area is from Taylor in Pennsylvania, who would like to know how how you two feel as veterinarians about euthanizing a perfectly healthy unwanted horse at the request of its owner. Tough question. I think this is a tremendously difficult area. Um, those of us who have become veterinarians, you know, went into the profession uh, in order to save horses, um, and none of us are uh, uh, find it easy to euthanize a healthy horse um, simply because it is no longer uh, useful to its current owner. My personal opinion is that I think that part of my responsibility to the horses for whom I uh, serve is to ensure that they don't end up in um, circumstances which are not in their own best interest. And so I take it upon myself if I am unable to find another solution for a horse who has become un unwanted by its current owner um, to euthanize it because I really think that that is the responsible situation. I know that that horse will not be abandoned, will not be abused, will not be neglected, and um, I think the quality of life um, is more important than the quantity uh, in this sort of situation, unpleasant as the task may be. Yeah, I'd like to comment too. I think euthanizing a horse, even if it has terminal colic or fractures, is always difficult because unlike dogs or cats that, that are lying on a, a counter and when you euthanize them they just lower their head and go to sleep, horses crash to the ground because they have a strong desire to stay on their feet. And I know I've had the unfortunate experience to have to euthanize a horse that 25 years ago I delivered as a foal. I've known him his whole life. So I think it's really difficult, but I agree with Dr. Leach that if we can't find another home for the horse or we can't put them in a good situation where they're going to be healthy and happy, then it's in the best interest of the horse to put that horse down. And when any of these decisions are made, we always have to look at what's the best interest of that individual horse. And even though it's really difficult, I think that, uh, I think that we have to do that. All right. Now, this are t tough questions and tough answers for sure. Thank you. Um, Mary from California would like to know if you have any suggestions on how to organize a low-cost euthanasia clinic, should the need arise. Well, there's quite a bit of discussion about that in the horse industry right now because I think we've come to the realization that we can't, uh, we can't 
rescue or place in sanctuaries or warehouse every horse that becomes uh, unneeded or unwanted. And so uh, we can't afford it as an industry, and I'm not sure it's in the best interest of a lot of the horses to just uh, put them in with a bunch of horses and let them stand there the rest of their lives. So, you know, we have low-cost castration clinics that are sprouting up around the country right now and are very successful, and there's quite a lot of discussion about euthanasia clinics. And I know that uh, some are being done in California and Oregon and in Kentucky. Usually it's done after a horse has been triaged and they've determined if the horse is suitable for someone to adopt as a riding horse. Is the horse healthy enough to be used for another purpose or, or is this horse not a good candidate for adoption or rehoming or retraining? And then the horse is euthanized. They don't euthanize every horse that comes in the, the door. What they tend to do is ask the owners to relinquish the horse and then that allows them to make the decision whether to rehome the horse or retrain it or euthanize it. So I think we'll see that uh, quite a lot in the future. And like I said earlier, the, the cost of euthanasia is not the big deal here. It's the cost of carcass disposal uh, is expensive. And, uh, and that's part of it. But I believe, I know the Unwanted Horse Coalition, and I know some of the breed associations have been discussion lately about uh, providing funds to provide uh, various organizations around the United States to allow them to either hold a euthanasia clinic where horses are brought in or to provide vouchers where you can go to your veterinarian and say, I can no longer afford this horse or this horse is old and uh, uncomfortable and not doing well and here's a voucher for $100 or $150 to help defray the cost of euthanizing it, uh, which I think is the direction most of these organizations are going to want to go. But there's certainly a lot of discussion about it in the, in the uh, industry. All right, thank you for that. Now we'll kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of talking about euthanasia for older horses, uh, birth control to keep them from becoming problems in the first place. We touched a little bit on the low-cost uh, castration clinics. Um, we've also had a question from Annalisa on population control among wild herds. Um, she suggested gelding the colts might be the answer, rather than people have, of course, looked at various ways of reducing fertility mm -hmm. in the mares. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, you know, about half all the horses are stallions. Eventually, end up being stallions, and so. I think contrary to what a lot of people uh, believe, these are very small bands of horses. The average band probably has three or four mares in it with one stallion, and then there are younger stallions that are the kind of satellite stallions, they call them, that are always around the edge of the herd hoping uh, to drive a mare off. And so castration of stallions is certainly could be part of it. Uh, there's some work going on uh, focused on Spain mares, low-cost Spain of mares, which uh, certainly could be part of it. There's a lot of work going on in developing drugs to uh, provide the mares to make men fertile. There's two types of vaccines. These are primarily vaccines. One would stop the mare from cycling. The other would allow her cycle and exhibit normal species-typical behavior, but yet not get pregnant. And uh, and that tends to be the one that the Bureau of Land Management's in favor of. The problem is that 
in the few hundred horses, I think they have maybe up to uh, 2,000 horses they've had on these tests. You have to gather the horses and you have to vaccinate them manually and they cannot be pregnant or they prefer they not be pregnant when you vaccinate them. And so it's, it's very difficult to do, but, but I think with time, <clears throat> excuse me, with time, we will develop some type of long-acting uh, birth control measure that we can give horses, and, uh, and it'll certainly stop them from breeding. Of course, domestic horses, there's the best way to, not, uh, to keep them getting pregnant is not to breed them in the first place, but uh, uh, wild horses, uh, there's certainly some challenges yet to be made, but there's a lot of effort and a lot of research and a lot of money being spent to try to develop uh, something that works. Very good. I'll second the don't breed. <laughs> and we'll move into uh, some, talk about some solutions. Right. Um, what are some of the, what's the best way to donate money to rescue horses? This, this is a question from Terry in Tennessee. Um, she'd like to know how, I mean, how do you donate the money? How do you know it's being used well? How do you pick out a good rescue to donate to? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is to make sure that it's a viable rescue that knows what they're doing. And uh, the problem we have is there are a lot of really well-intentioned, uh, ill-informed people that call themselves a rescue that are, are not. And a lot of these in recent years have been getting in trouble and the horses end up in worse shape than they were. And some of these people are what we call collectors or hoarders. They they love horses, they want to take care of them, but they really don't know how to take care of them, and only the horses end up in a worse spot. So I think it's important to uh, really vet the rescue that you want to donate money to. And as I said earlier, if you go on the Unwanted Horse Coalition website, which is unwantedhorsecoalition.com, there are guidelines on there to tell you what questions to ask these rescues to make sure they're doing what you want. And uh, you know, like I said earlier, that, that there are 501c3, that when you donate the money that you can deduct it from your taxes, that they're following the AAP guidelines on care of horses in a rescue, that the people are good horsemen and understand the nutritional requirements of a horse and how to take care of a horse, that they're working to refit and retrain the horses so that they can be adopted up rather than just collecting them. I mean, there are a number of things that you can ask, but I would certainly recommend that you uh, go on the website and look because there are some outstanding rescues around this country, and then there are some that aren't very good. Absolutely. And our next question is from T in Texas who says, I feel we need a better network to help horses in need. What are your suggestions for that? Well... There's a pretty good network right now. Uh, I, I think what would help a lot is if we had a national organization of rescues. I know we've tried in the past to develop a national list, and we can only come up with five or 600 rescues nationwide, and I know there are a lot more than that. Uh, so I think that's something that would certainly help a lot. But, but again, and I'm not, I seem to keep pushing in on a horse coalition, but they have a lot of really good information and they have over 600 rescues listed on their website. So, so they've made some effort to start that. And I think some states, uh, in your home state, if you uh, contact your uh, 
local state horse council frequently, they will have a list. I know Colorado has that, and I know California does. You contact their local uh, state horse council, they'll have a list of rescues, so they'll certainly know who to refer you to. All right, thank you for that. And we've got a, a question from our from our live audience, a uh, fellow veterinarian named Rebecca, would like to know what your thoughts are on certification and training requirements for rescues. Well, there's been a lot of discussion about this. Uh, we've discussed it in depth at the AEP. We discussed it at Horse Council earlier in this week. I think that will happen eventually. It's very difficult to do because first you have to have inspectors. And what we propose is that perhaps a local veterinarian could be the inspector. Then it's a matter of whether or not you uh, pay them to do it or whether they volunteer to do it. I don't think it's difficult to set up standards for rescues. There are plenty of those that have been developed. Uh, but there's some discussion about that. There's some discussion by breed associations. I know the thoroughbred folks are talking about trying to develop a system to certify uh, rescues that rescue thoroughbreds. There's some discussion uh, by various state governments. Well, the state would do that. I think ideally uh, the best solution would be for the states to do it. But today with the economy, I'm not sure they can afford to do something like that. But there is a lot of discussion. I think it's a great, it's a great idea. I think we need to do it. Uh, you know, it would help us determine, first of all, wh where the rescues are. Who are they? And secondly, uh, it would help people that are donating money or people that have a horse that they want to relinquish to know which are the good rescues, retraining facilities, which are not. But there's ongoing work looking at that, and I think uh, in the not-too-distant future we'll see something like that developed. All right. Very good. And I'd like to throw up another poll for our audience briefly as we're talking about people helping, um, people that might be able to help. Do you have the space, resource, and willingness to take in a rescue horse? Let us know. We'll move on to our next question. Um, briefly, Katrina in Georgia would like to know how she might go about starting a support organization like a rescue or a feed or hay bank for unwanted horses. Well, again, there are a lot of these already in place, and what I would encourage you to do um, is to, uh, again, I, I keep saying the unwanted horse coalition, but they have resources on how to start a rescue. They have pamphlets on how to do that. And uh, they can certainly help you out. And there are also two of the board members on the Unwanted Horse Coalition are very prominent rescues. One's a Days End Rescue in the eastern part of the country, and maybe the other one's a rescue in Colorado. And their purpose on the board is to, is to help folks that want to start rescues to give them some guidance and direction and, and kind of a checklist of, to, to work through, and I think that's certainly the best the best route to go. Sure. And our next question is from Belinda in New Mexico, who would like to is a horse owner and says she has room for two more. How can she How can she help? How, where should she go to find a horse to rescue? Well, uh, I'm going to plug the Unwanted Horse Coalition too because <laughs> I think it is the most. Um, valuable source of information uh, that you can get, but I would also say that uh, local information is going to be um, the most valuable, obviously, um, and uh, you can contact your 
local veterinarian, you can contact your state veterinary association. And I know in Pennsylvania, uh, the state association actually has listings of uh, rehab and rescue places which are available. And um, by word of mouth frequently, there is information among the um, veterinarians in an area as to horses which <coughs> may be in need of being rescued. I would say, as I mentioned before, before you take horses, you need to be absolutely sure that you can make this sort of long-term commitment um, that really uh, is at the basis of rescue or rehabilitation. Um, I think taking them on for a short range really doesn't resolve the problem, but um, I, I, I would encourage uh, a person such as this to uh, start with uh, his or her own veterinarian as the uh, initial source uh, for information about horses which may be in need of uh, uh, relocation. Absolutely, and I'd like to put in a, a small plug again for our Adoptable Horse Service online as well. There are some horses listed there that different people may or may not be aware of, so that's another so another source to get information on horses. Thank you. I and I, right. I slipped my mind. I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh no, no problem. Up, no Christy. problem. Just want to make sure everybody knows that's out there. Um, the results of our poll, briefly, do you have the space, resources, and willingness to take in any rescue horses? 41% of our audience says yes. Thank you very much for that. And 59% say no, not at this time. That's good. That is great. It's great to hear. And that sort of brings me to something that um, might, might, be, might be a fun idea for somebody to work on. Uh, would you be willing to be listed on an available home type directory for people who need to rehome? rehome horses and just need a place to a place to send them. That's another thought that uh, that had been sent in by one of our readers. And while we're working on that, we're going to move on to another <clears throat> excuse me another question. We're going to move on to a very popular question actually um, from Elizabeth in New Mexico who would like to know if there are any financial resources for people who want to keep their horses but can't afford them or who may want to rescue horses but need some money to help do so. Probably one of the most popular questions well, we received, um, actually. I don't think, uh, I, I think that facilitating uh, financially the ownership of horses uh, for people who can't afford them is really uh, contraindicated. I think that um, it may, in fact, add to the unwanted horse population. I think that uh, certainly supporting uh, rescue and Rehabilitation, and I would like to stress rehabilitation. Uh, I think if horses can be retrained to do a, another job for which they are physically and mentally suited is much the uh, more uh, successful means of helping to deal with this problem. As Dr. Lenz pointed out, we can't simply continue to warehouse these plus thousand horses who become unwanted every year. Um, so that I think if you are looking for some place to uh, spend uh, your discretionary funds supporting uh, well-established uh, rehabilitation and, and rescue facilities is a much more effective means to dealing with the problem than supplying people who can't afford horses um, with funds to uh, allow them to have them. All right, perfect. 
And our results of our poll, briefly, um, would you be willing to be listed in an available homes type directory for people who need to rehome horses? 33% um, of you say yes, you would. Thank you very much for that. And 67% no. And I'm going to bring up one other poll real quick for our audience, um, since we were just talking about costs. Um, how much would you guess that it costs to a rescue and retirement facility to maintain a horse for a year? A little bit of a quiz question for you. We'll bring that up and move on to our next question. Um, uh, Gerlanda in Louisiana would like to know how she can find funding sources for her rescue facility. I'm going to step in on this one real briefly. We have a number of articles uh, primarily written by our Horses in the Law blogger Milt Toby that deal with this on thehorse.com as well as some blog posts. So I would, I would suggest uh, checking out that blog for some information on uh, funding and getting a rescue facility set up and whatnot. Um, and uh, moving on a little bit, uh, legislative questions. We had quite a number of these as well. Um, questions about, you know, would, would this legislative strategy or if we made it illegal to do this or, or whatnot, that maybe this would help alleviate the problem. Um, what are your thoughts on adding laws to deal with owner responsibility in general? Because we don't have time to touch on all of these. We're running pretty tight on time. Well, that's kind of difficult yeah. to do. <laughs> I mean... I mean <laughs> You can't you can't legislate how people are going to behave. Um, That's right. You know, I think that I I do think that at least I live in Pennsylvania, in southeastern Pennsylvania, which is a very big uh, pleasure horse area. Um, performance horses, pleasure horses. There's thoroughbred racing around us, standard bred racing around us. So it's a, a high horse population area. Um, there's certainly plenty of laws about animal cruelty, and we have a number um, right uh, of organizations who, uh, you know, are trying to foster care of horses like this. But the reality of it is that uh, the biggest expense is uh, catching bad folks. You got to have um, officials who have that responsibility, and they need to be funded. And it's fine to write legislation, but if you uh, if you can't uh, fund that legis the the uh, the um, uh, if you can't fund uh, the uh, the implementation of that legislation, it really makes uh, very little uh, impact. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that certainly in this current downturn, which we hope is not a double dip, um, you know, having funds to look into uh, animal welfare situations um, it, it, it are difficult to come up with. And so uh, I think that we are dependent upon um, volunteers, et cetera, the, the horse group are, that are uh, very active around here um, in terms of monitoring large animal and primarily horse abuse or misuse um, are is a 501c3, and it is um, it is manned by volunteers, and the law is brought in when, in fact, a, a situation requires it. But all of the other work is is done by volunteers. You know, I that's the reality of the situation today. Absolutely. So. Yeah, and to add to that, you know, what we found as we looked at this situation is that most animal control officers 
and most counties or cities are trained to deal with neglecting small animals, but they're not at all trained to evaluate neglecting horses. And uh, so usually it falls to the sheriff department, and they, they don't have that training either, and they don't have the funds or facilities to confiscate the horses anyhow. So it's, it, it's really it'd be very, very difficult, I would think, to do that. Now, that doesn't mean there are not some efforts um, to do that, but I think it would be really hard to legislate uh, breeding animals. Absolutely. Challenges you know, to me, it all comes... The, this whole issue comes down to owner responsibility. That's it. When you have a horse, then you need to be responsible for it. While you have it and if you sell it, you need to make sure it goes to people that are going to be responsible. And uh, if something happens to it and needs to be euthanized, you need to be the one that's responsible for doing that. And uh, that's the bottom line for solving the problem. If every individual out there would take total responsibility for the horse, there wouldn't be an issue, I don't believe. Right. And, I mean, we have, and the same is true for small animals. Um, you know, the right. SPCAs are filled yeah. with dogs and cats who are abandoned or who are Christmas presents and by the first of the new year, um, pillowed on the carpet has gotten old and uh, off they go. And I think responsibility, right. responsible ownership of animals is at the basis of animal welfare, good Absolutely. animal welfare. You know. Absolutely agreed. I know a friend of mine who volunteers quite a bit at some, one of the local shelters says just it's really sad how many kittens and puppies and various other animals show up at the shelter within the first few days after Christmas. And that's just something that shouldn't happen uh, on yeah. just a grander scale. Yeah. So. Um, we've got just a, we're running a little bit over time, but just a couple other questions. And I think the other thing oh, which you... Go ahead. Oh, well, the only other thing I was going to say is in my um, uh, exposure to the unwanted horse situation, I think that what is has been a very noble effort by a number of facility, uh, rescue, you know, SPCAs that are, for decades have been used to bringing in dogs and cats and maybe the occasional rabbit, you know, are feeling some responsibility to try to address the horse situation, and they are completely um, ill-prepared in terms of facilities or expense, um, et cetera, and, you know, and yet they're dedicated to the welfare of animals, and so they try to assist um, with this unwanted equine population, and, uh, you know, it is, it's a tremendous challenge, and they're, you know, they are, it's all of in good will and in good heart, and they find themselves in a really untenable situation when they end up with, you know, vast amounts of manure to dispose of, uh, the space that's taken up by um, unwanted horses as opposed to an unwanted dog. Um, and I, I, my heart goes out to these folks who have tried to take on a part of this problem that really you know, was was not something that they were ever really uh, financially or or physically, um, in terms of, uh, in, you know, their their physical layout to uh, to accommodate, and they find themselves in a real you know in a really very difficult situation because they now have responsibility for an animal and it's um, you know it has 
has a vastly negative effect on the other things that they're trying to do. Absolutely. And just real briefly, the results of our poll and of our audience, how much does it cost a rescue and retirement facility to maintain a horse for one year? Understanding, of course, this is a broad average because a lot of these horses will need a little bit more veterinary care, some less. Um, but that Unwanted Horse Coalition survey that we mentioned uh, actually found that it was right around $2,300, and 34% of you said $2,300, uh, 10% yeah, said $1,400. That's good. Yeah, 27% and 32% $3,000, so that and about a third. <laughs> uh, we're going to move on to another question, and um, I might aggravate a few people in the audience to know it's, it's kind of an interesting concept that unfortunately happens all too often. Ken from New York. Uh, says, why can't unwanted horses be placed on BLM land or just turned loose? And, of course, you see this with dogs and cats, too. It's <coughs> equally a problem. Well, I think uh, most horses that are turned loose, and there, there are some that are turned loose, don't survive well. If you go out in Nevada or Wyoming or Montana or Utah where the wild herds are, and I've been out there many times on their roundups, you're amazed that any horse can survive out there, and, and you're always surprised when you see uh, wild horses that they're fat, slick, and healthy because it looks like there's no grass. Uh, and grass is pretty sparse, but those horses have adapted and they do very well. The problem with turning a domestic horse out is most of them will not have the ability to, uh, to adapt to that type of a food base and would starve to death, but the most immediate problem would be range stallions because, like I said earlier, every four or five mares has a stallion, and uh, if you were to turn loose a domestic horse and they wandered in, uh, one of these stallions would severely injure them or, or perhaps kill them, and so it's my experience that those horses that are just turned loose don't do well and don't survive. That's absolutely not what we're going for. All right, so we've got time for just uh, one more quick poll, just out of curiosity of the audience. Um, what do you think of approximately what percent of horses relinquished to rescue facilities are actually rehomed? We'll throw that out there, and we'll deal with another question real quick. Um, Marguerite in Florida would like to know why the BLM is still holding large auctions as more Mustangs are being neglected and turned over to animal shelters. And we discussed this a little bit earlier. I'm not sure that's actually the case. Dr. Lenz? No. No, they, they hold adoptions where they put horses up to adopt, and they do that all over the country. And uh, unfortunately, the number of horses that are being adopted has decreased over the last three or four years. Uh, BLM horses, when they're captured, they have a freeze brand placed under their mane on the left side of their neck, and that freeze brand identifies that horse. And so it's illegal to send that horse to a processing plant or in regard to this question, if that horse was sent to a rescue, it would uh, they would contact the Bureau of Land Management and they would take that horse back. And and so these adoptions that are going on around the country, they're, they're not auctions. Uh, they're adoptions where you can, for a certain amount of money, adopt one of these horses. Now there are some horses that the Bureau of Land Management has had trained uh, the prison system in Colorado and I believe in Texas and two or three other states train uh, many of the BLM horses, the gildings, and, and then those horses are sold, I think around fifteen or eighteen hundred dollars, something like that. But that's an effort to 
to do something with these animals to uh, to give them a good home and a purpose in life. You know, probably the best thing that's happened to wild horses in this country is two or three years ago they started the Extreme Mustang Makeover where they take 100 or 200 gildings and they turn them over to 200 uh, trainers that are have been vetted and known to be good trainers and then they have a competition for these horses and then the horses are are, uh, are put up for adoption and I've attended some of those horse shows and it's remarkable to me to see uh, what they can do with a horse that has never seen a human being that's four or five years old and in three months I train that horse to do remarkable things. In fact, a lot of them do things that I've been riding my horse for 15 years and he can't do. So <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of effort out there to to help these horses, and so they're not. Uh, I I I support the efforts of the Bureau of Land Management to to train these horses, to put them up for adoption, to get them out because a lot of them, some of them are poor quality, but some of them are excellent horses. They're nice, big, stout, healthy, intelligent horses. That the thing that strikes me frequently is some of these horses will have manes that are two or three feet long and a tail that drags the ground. And, and I, you know, I have a hard time getting a mane at all on my horse to go very long. And, and it's amazing to look at them. There are a lot of them are really nice, quality, intelligent horses, and they're very athletic because they've spent their whole life running through brush and, and rocks and so forth, and so they're they're handy horses. They just haven't been handled. Right. Very good points. It's a fun show to watch too. <laughs> um, all right. All right. So the uh, results of our poll, real quickly: what percent of horses are re relinquished to rescue or rehomed? Um, believe the correct answer from the survey was. 60% uh, on plus or minus on average are rehomed. Uh, we had 25% of you got that one right. 33% said 25%. 38% thought it was about the same. 38%. 3% uh, of you thought we were doing pretty well at 80%. Unfortunately, we're not. We're not quite that lucky as yet. Um, we're going to touch on just one more quick question. We're, we're a little over time here, but um, Phil from Georgia would like to know: uh, Does having or training your horse to ride um, reduce the possibility of him becoming unwanted, in other words, making your horse more desirable, should he ever need another home? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, anything you do to make, uh, to in increase the uh, qualities of uh, a horse you own, um, to as far as making it appealing, whether it, you're teaching it to ride, drive, uh, do tricks, be good with kids, uh, whatever. As Dr. Lenz pointed out earlier, you know there are a lot of older horses who are retiring from a more strenuous performance career, who are perfectly, wonderfully suited to start up, um, you know, young riders. And so I think the worst thing that you can do is if you have um, bred or uh, acquired a young horse, is to fail to um, uh, to train it, to uh, establish it with good manners, and um, you know, I think that uh, that that it, it, it you know it it ends up being something similar to uh, a wild mustang. I mean, the vast majority of people are not looking to take on a horse who isn't well handled, doesn't have good manners, um, and uh, 
doesn't offer some um, some uh, quality or trait uh, which allows it to be more useful or more entertaining to uh, the people who are taking it on. So absolutely train them, give them good manners, make them um, happy to be relying on mankind as opposed to frightened and uh, it never ceases to amaze me how uh, compliant horses are, how much they are willing to learn to do and do well and do with uh, great good grace. Um, so I would certainly encourage everybody to, to uh, train their horses to their maximum level of uh, athletic ability. All right, very good. And I just wanted to wrap up real briefly. Uh, Dr. Lenz had a couple more slides on some of the top solutions that were that came out of that uh, that Unwanted Horse uh, Coalition survey. So I just wanted to wrap up real br briefly with that, Dr. Lenz. Right. Well, the number one solution, as we talked about earlier, is responsible ownership. I mean, when a person takes on ownership of a horse, they need to be uh, committed to that horse. Uh, a lifelong commitment, or if they're going to sell the horse, they need to ensure that whoever buys the horse has a lifelong commitment. I know, I'm sure Dr. Leach is this way and I'm this way. My horses, are, when they have a problem that requires euthanasia, we euthanize them. We don't take the sales barn and sell them. And uh, I think that's what everybody needs to do. Aiding private rescues, retirement and training facilities is big. And, and as we said earlier, there's a lot of work going on to do that. Uh, increase options for euthanasia and carcass disposal. There's quite a lot of work going on there and in an effort to uh, provide low-cost euthanasia for horses for people that can't afford to put a horse down. <clears throat> and then the last, according to the survey, was to reopen the processing plants. Uh, personally, I'm not, I don't believe that will ever happen in this country, but, uh, but some of the people that took the survey certainly felt it would. Some of the things that the, this issue has done, it's, you know, the discussion over horse slaughter, processing horses for meat has polarized the horse industry and, and those in the non-horse owned industry that are interested, and uh, which, is, which is kind of a pity because really the issue is what do we do with the horses? Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not horse slaughter, it's unwanted horse care and how we resolve it, and I believe that if we can develop a responsible horse ownership and uh, take care of our horses, that, that there won't be a need to send a horse to a processing plant or that the horses are such low value that they end up there. It's lowered the price of mid to uh, low end horses by 18 to 21 percent, which is quite a lot. I'm, uh, and I'm not sure when that will come back. There's quite a lot of increase and you can see that in newspapers and magazines across the country and horses that are turned loose or, or neglected or abused. Uh, most of the rescue facilities are near capacity and as many horses stay there for life as are adopted out. And again, I, I, I personally I don't believe that warehousing horses is the solution to the problem. Agreed. Just one more slide. Oops. And as I said earlier, there are a lot of good things that are happening. And I think for the first time maybe in the history of horses in this country, there's a realization by the horse industry that, that there is an issue here that has to be addressed. And, uh, 
into the attributes of most of the horse industry, they're addressing it, like I said earlier. The Jockey Club's certainly putting a lot of money into it. The Quarter Horse Association, they have on their website, you can go in there and, and people list horses that they would like to give away, and most of these are pretty good horses. They have the full circle program where you can put on a horse's paper that if the owner or second or third owner decides they don't want the horse, that you're willing to take the horse back. Uh, there's a lot of effort, as we said earlier, with uh, low-cost castration clinics. There's the uh, uh, program through the Unwanted Horse Coalition that donates vaccines to horse rescues. Uh, that's been very successful. So there's a lot of there's a lot of really good things happening in the horse industry. Uh, and of course, any problem that you have, the first the first step is awareness, and we're certainly aware of it now, and we're certainly working hard to resolve it. Now, it's not going to be resolved tomorrow, but I think uh, uh, in the future, not too distant future, there will be a dramatic improvement in this issue in this country. All right. Well, thank you very much for that for that summary. And it's it's we've had a, quite a few people attend this session tonight, and it's it's really encouraging. There's a lot of passion about this issue, and we may not always agree on the right way to solve the problem, but with this much interest in solving the problem, I certainly feel a lot of confidence that we that we will find a way. And uh, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to extend a very very heartfelt thanks to Drs. Leach and Lentz for their time, and of course to our audience for participating. We've had a lot of fantastic questions. And just a reminder, this session will be archived soon on thehorse.com if you'd like to read it again or share it, or listen to it again or share it. I'd encourage you to uh, also check out more information uh, with all the uh, organizations and websites that uh, Drs. Leach and Lentz mentioned. And last but not least, thanks to Pfizer Animal Health for bringing this free session to you today. Check them out at www.strongedc2x.com. Hope everyone has a great evening, and thanks again for your participation.